Our Father, we come with hearts filled with thanks that we can focus on the Word of God and that we have the freedom to do that and that you have promised that your Spirit will be with us to guide us, to teach us, to give to us insight and understanding of what it is you have said to us through, through the men and women of God that were your servants through the course of these thousands of years. We're so grateful, Lord, that uh, you have blessed us individually. I'm thankful for those here this morning who have uh, been touched by you physically, who have been ill over the past uh, few days. And, and Father, for those that are even ill even this morning, we pray for your special touch and healing. Now, Father, we ask that uh, as the Word of God is proclaimed in the service and in the various classes this morning, that you will move in each and every heart according to your great plan for each individual. In Christ's name, amen. Let me uh, read this morning, beginning with the 12th verse of the 33rd chapter of Exodus. Exodus 33:12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See thou thus say to me, Bring up this people, but thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover, thou hast said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that, in my that I may find favor in thy sight. Consider, too, that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If thy presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not by thy going with us, so that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? In this passage, we find Moses coming boldly before the throne of grace. We have been given individually the opportunity to do that also by the work which Christ has done, and we read that in Hebrews, that we are told to come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might find grace to help in time of need. And that is exactly what Moses is doing here in this passage. He's coming before sovereign majesty based upon a relationship which God has established with him over these, these years which have preceded this event. As I emphasized last time, Moses is very uncomfortable with his position right now. He stands between God, who has given him a command to take this people to the promised land, and the people who have been in rebellion against God. And he is in that intermediary position, not a good position to be in, at least as Moses saw it at that moment. And his, his chief goal in this encounter with God is to see if God will reverse his proclaimed statement that he was no longer going to be in the midst of Israel. They had sinned, and so he was not going to be in their midst. And Moses comes to God seeking him to change that. And he couches his request within the framework, and this is a real key understanding here. He couches his request within the framework of God's own words and God's own promises. Notice in verse 13 of the passage which we read, how Moses prays. In effect, he was saying, since you have said 
that I have found favor in your sight. You have said it, Lord, that I have found favor in your sight. Since that is true, he goes on to say, let me know thy ways that I may know thee. Let me know your ways so that I can know you. This is a beautiful model prayer. It's a prayer that God would love to hear from every one of our lips. After all, the whole purpose of our being here, of our existence, is that we might come to know Him, whom the Scripture says, whom to know is life eternal. God wants us to know Him, not to know about Him, because many people know about God. We live in a country of people who claim to know about God. But He wants us to have an intimate understanding of His character, to know who He is, the best which is possible, of course, given who we are and given the limitations of our frailty as human beings. How can we have an intimate relationship with God? How can we know Him in the way that Moses was praying here? Well, the only way that we can achieve such an intimate understanding is by a careful study of His ways. And how do we know His ways? Well, we know His ways through this book. That's the way, way by which we can know Him. And there really isn't any other way. I mean, we can know Him in a generic way. Uh, we can know Him in the sense that He was the God of creation and that He is the God who sustains the universe. But the ancients had some kind of concept of God in that sense, you know, the prime mover, the great motivator, whatever. But in the sense of knowing His character, how does God think? What does God want us to do? What is our relationship with Him and thus to those around us to be? We can only discover that through His Word. God's words and His actions, which are described, of course, in His Word, reveal to us His nature. Just as our words and our actions reveal to one another who we are. How do I know who you are? By what, how you relate to me and how, how your words come to me and by what I see you do. I get to know you as a person. And the same with God. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, said that the fruit of a prophet will reveal whether he is a true prophet or a false prophet. The fruit of the prophet. The good things that come out of his life, the, the veracity of his, of his prophecy. Our daily walk and our daily talk demonstrates the reality of our faith. Not just our official walk and talk when we're in front of all uh, the other smiling little believers, but our walk and talk when we're in other venues, when we're, when we're alone, when we're with our family, when we're off recreating someplace. What is our walk and talk like then? Because that really demonstrates who we are. Moses' prayer, I think, should be our prayer. Lord, let me know your ways so that I might truly know you. In the same verse, verse 13, we find Moses con concludes the verse, concludes this prayer with the, the simple statement, consider too that this nation is thy people. Now, I, I think we have to understand that Moses knew he was not informing God about anything here. God is omniscient. God knows all things. But, but what he's doing is reminding God because of the particular circumstance he found himself in at that moment. 
Yes, they had sinned. They had sinned mightily before God. They had installed a heretical God, the golden calf. But nevertheless, God had made a covenant with his people. God had made a covenant with his people clear back in the days of Abraham, hundreds of years before. And he had renewed that covenant with Isaac. He had renewed the covenant with Jacob. He had renewed the covenant with Moses at the burning bush. He renewed the covenant with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Israel is your people, God. God's response is wonderful here to Moses' entreaty. He grants Moses' desire. He grants his request. He says, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. That doesn't mean he's going to give him a lounge chair someplace with lemonade, you know, and a sunset. It, it means, of course, that in God's hands, he will be able to put it all, put his anxieties, his cares, and relax in God and know that God will carry him through and God will accomplish his purpose through Moses. When Moses speaks as he does in verse 15 here, I mean, God says in verse 14, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses' response is, if thy presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. And as we read that, we might say, whoa, is Moses uh, doubting God here? Is he questioning that God is really meaning what God is saying? I don't think so. I don't think Moses is expressing any doubt here whatsoever, and he's not being sarcastic. I think what he is doing is simply expressing the deep, heartfelt need inside himself that it is absolutely essential that you go with Israel. Because if you don't, we won't make it. We'll never get there. We'll never achieve the promised land. This is a verse, I think, which we should also remember to pray. Lord, if you're not going with us, don't lead us from here. I think it's a real critical prayer to pray. As we face a major possible move, a major decision, a job change, whatever it might be, our prayer should be, God, if you're not going with us in this, if you're not going with me in this, don't lead me from this spot. Moses' life is full of examples to us as to how we should live and how we should pray and how we should think and how we should trust. Well, I think Moses clearly understood that God set apart his people from the rest of the world, but they are distinguished from the rest of the world only by his presence in their midst. The only way Israel could be distinguished from the Amalekites and the Jebusites and all the other ites that lived in that part of the world was that God was in their midst. The only thing that made Judaism, which is a term we, I suppose we could use for, for the religion, the, the faith which is being born here, not to think of it in the modern sense, but in its original sense, the only thing that made Judaism more than just another religion was God's presence in the midst of Israel. And I don't think it takes much of a stretch of understanding to carry that over to Christianity. Christianity is just a religion. No better, no worse than most other religions. If God is not in the midst of the church, God didn't raise up the church just to be another social institution or another thing, another thing to do. Unfortunately, this has been the condition of the institutionalized church for over 1,500 years. Advocating, in most cases, or in many cases, I should say, nothing more than a cultural Christianity a kind of a form of religion, but without any substance, without any power. When the church is made up of those who are truly God's people, 
Christianity is not a religion. It is the faith. It is the faith. The only faith. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, a life. The difference that God makes by dwelling in the midst of his people is clearly spelled out, spelled out for us in many, many passages of Scripture. But one I think is very pointed is the passage I suppose most of us know pretty well from the fifth chapter of Galatians. But I'd like to read it again this morning because it is such a contrast as you study this passage between those without God and those with God. And I think we have to understand that there is no gradation here. It's not a gradation from those without God to kind of those with a little bit of God and those with a little more of God and those with God. That's not scriptural. There's no transition. You either have God or you don't have God, and that's it. There's a sheer, sharp line of distinction because God doesn't come in parts. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. This is, this is the natural condition. This is the condition that prevails from the Garden of Eden. The failure there at the Garden of Eden has created this condition which has prevailed to this very day, that the flesh sets itself against the desire of the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. In other words, it isn't really your choice. It's really a choice driven. If, if we're in the flesh, the choice is driven by the flesh. If we're in the Spirit, the choice is led by the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Paul is really meddling here. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, for whom this is a lifestyle, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, that's a very powerful statement. But, in sharp contrast now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, <laughs> gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit positionally, because we have been born again by the Spirit of God, then let's walk by the Spirit that has been placed within us. It's possible for us not to do that. It's possible for us to have Christ living within us because we have become a Christian, but to not walk according to His dictates, at least faithfully. I think if we don't walk at all according to His dictates, then there has not been a born-again experience. Because Christ says, you are my disciples if you do what I say. Paul, I think, makes it clear in this passage and in other passages
that it is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning that has distinguished God's people from the pagan world. I don't know if you've ever taken any time to study the religions of the world, but if you do so, you discover there's a great deal of similarity in them. Almost every religion of the world is a religion of works. It's what you do that earns respect from the divinities or the spirits, whatever it is you're trying to appease or please. Look at, look at Islam, look at Buddhism, look at Hinduism. It's all works, work, work, work. You try to do things which make the gods happy. And that's how you earn your, quote, salvation or nirvana or wherever it is you're trying to go. But in Christianity, it, it's all different. You know? There isn't a thing you can do to earn it, we're told in Ephesians. Unfortunately, the church hasn't quite always taught that. We can't earn our, our salvation. It only comes as a gift from God by faith. Then we work. Then we work. And those works demonstrate the reality of our faith. Those works are used by God to accomplish His purposes here in this life, but they don't earn us one degree of entrance into heaven. It's a gift of God. Paul highlights this in Colossians. Let me just back over to Colossians chapter 1. Hi highlights the fact that it is the indwelling Christ that makes all the difference in the world. Let me read uh, from verse 24, Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. That I, might carry, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when he uses the word hope there, as you've heard certainly many times, he doesn't mean, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. The word really means the expectation, the absolute certainty of glory in Christ. You, you talk to many of, of certain Christian denominations and they will tell you, oh, I sure hope I'll get to heaven. Well, if that's the way they think of it, they probably won't. Because in Christ there is no hoping in that sense. In Christ there is the certainty of eternal life because we have been born again, born from above, a child of God. And we will actually stand in His presence because that is the promise. And we're told that the Holy Spirit is just the down payment. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the down payment guaranteeing that we will one day be in His presence forever and ever. It's not a kind of a, oh man, I sure hope so because I'll be in big trouble if I don't. That, that feeling comes from not knowing God. Not knowing the character of God, not, not having an intimate relationship with Him. Because if we have that intimate relationship, we know God doesn't lie. And God is love and God is gracious. And that's what we're going to be coming to, of course, as we get, particularly in the 34th chapter of Exodus, when he talks about this, this profound experience. I mean, he has two of them in a row with God. 
And God demonstrates to him his graciousness and his truth and his loving kindness and his justice and all of these things which are part of the attributes of the living God. The seriousness of the removal of God's presence from the church is illustrated by the passage in the second chapter of Revelation where God is speaking of the church at Ephesus through John. To the angel, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. These are a lot of pluses. But in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And John in his epistle tells us that the overcomer, that, that Jesus is the one who has overcome the world, and we in him are also overcomers. Today, not only is Ephesus gone, but the church at Ephesus is gone too. And the church at Ephesus was gone a long time ago. God ultimately had to remove the candlestick, which means his presence was removed because the church apparently remained departed from his love and from the grace that he had given to the church. And, and it became apparently a kind of a legalistic church. You know, we can become legalistically anti-heresies in various ways without actually following the love of God. This is one of the problems that divides the church even today is that many churches are very strong about being against this kind of heresy or this other denomination or whatever it is, but, but there's no love there. You know, as I read in that passage in Galatians, it talks about the fact that those who are into factions and, and those who, who stand strongly into factionalism, Scripture says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Scripture tells us that we are supposed to dwell together in brotherly love. How will the world know that we are his disciples? But through the love of God, that Christians have one for another. And if Christians don't have love one for the other, then there is no testimony of the reality of who God is in this world. Let's go on to uh, the next uh, few verses in Exodus 33. The last verses in the chapter, beginning of verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion 
on whom I will show compassion. And he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses has interceded. Moses has made his request, and God has granted his request. I will remain in the midst of Israel. Furthermore, God reaffirmed the fact that Moses had found favor in his sight and was known by God. What does it mean to be known by God? Well, the Hebrew verb used here is a common one in Scripture in the Old Testament. But if you follow it, you'll discover when it refers to human beings, it can mean a vast array of things. It can mean any way, anything from just a passing acquaintance to the intimate knowledge of husband and wife. But when used of God, it always means an intimate relationship. God didn't merely know about Moses. He knew the very heart of this man, and he fully accepted him as his servant. Later on, when Miriam and Aaron <clears throat> will dare to suggest that they ought to be co-equal with Moses in leadership, God will in effect say, how dare you? How dare you? They didn't have the walk with God that Moses has had. Not, not that God was a respecter of persons, but Moses had been prepared to be this leader. And now they wanted to horn in on it. Why? Well, certainly because there was glory attached to it. What does it mean to not be known by God? That is, that's the question. Let me read a couple of verses from the seventh chapter of Matthew that really highlight that. Very, very specific about it, in fact. Matthew chapter 7, reading at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Some of you may remember Simon Magnus, who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit, the power to put on hands and give the Holy Spirit from Peter. And Peter says, may your money perish with you. And that name, or that term, became immortalized. Through the history of the church, the word simony, which comes from Simon Magnus, is used for the buying and selling of church offices, which was practiced very much in the medieval world by the Roman Catholic Church. And I don't know if I'd want to be immortalized that way, you know. It's like today, how many people name their kids Judas? Not very many. You know, uh, you have to be pretty perverse to do that. I'd really hate your child, one or the other. God makes it very clear that there will be people who will be religious. There will people, be people who actually do things in God's name. 
but, but they will do it out of their own selfish desires and motivations without knowing Him. And because they didn't know Him, God does not know them in this intimate sense of their being His child. Oh, sure, He knows who they are. He knows they're them better than they know themselves, but He also knows they're perverse and wicked and, and that they have no place in His kingdom, no matter what they proclaim or what they supposedly did in His name. Well, this response on the part of God, this statement from God whereby he said, I will be in the midst of Israel and I will be with you, elicited from Moses a reciprocal desire to know God more intimately. God, you know me. I want to know you. I want to know you. And, and I don't think it was a trite thing that just rolled off his lips, but from deep within his being, maybe without him even knowing it was coming, he says, show me thy glory. I don't know if you and I can even possibly put ourselves in Moses' place at that time. Uh, to just have that, that relationship going on with God at that moment where out of the depths of his being, he asks God to show him his glory. Moses had achieved a relationship with God that few others ever achieved. As far as we know in the Old Testament, no other person ever achieved. Again, it's not because of God's favoritism. It's because of God's sovereign choice and because of the obedience of the man Moses. Moses is not perfect, we know. Uh, Moses had a bit of an encounter with God at the burning bush where he wasn't totally desiring of doing all that God wanted him to do. And later on, he will make the mistake of uh, choosing to try to usurp a little of God's glory. But he was a man who was after God's own heart. And his prayer to see God's glory, I don't think, was based on mere curiosity. Ooh, I wonder what God's glory looks like. No, I don't think so. I don't think it was based on a desire to have a God high. You know, we talk today about being high on Jesus, whatever that's supposed to mean. I don't think that had anything to do with it. And I don't think it was because he wanted to be able to boast. Aha, people, I've seen God's glory. No, I don't think so. I think his prayer was based on his desire to no longer see shadows, to see a form vaguely, but to see reality. Some of you uh, know about, uh, probably have read Plato's uh, parable of the caves, the idols of the caves, where we talk about uh, life is like being uh, strapped, you know, kind of tied to a wall where all you can see are the shadows being cast on this wall all your life. And the reality is out there with the, with the sun shining past and throwing the shadows, but you don't get to see the reality in this life. Uh, the reality is, is there. It's the reality of the supernatural world or the world of thought, however Plato was really thinking here. But uh, all we see are the vague rea uh, shadows of reality. And Moses, I think, wanted to see reality. He wanted to see what was real. You and I are living in a world that is passing. It's transient. It will be no more one day. Scripture says heaven and earth will pass away. And a new heaven and a new earth will come down from the throne of God. I believe his prayer relates to Paul's statement. You remember at the end of that wonderful passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of it he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. God does not look in a mirror dimly. 
God lives with the, sees with the acuteness of the fire of eternal deity. But all we see at this point are shadows. We live by the eye of faith. Moses was wanting to go beyond that. Scripture says that God knew Moses face to face, but Moses wanted it to be really face to face. We might say that he was asking for a revelation to surpass all previous revelations which he had experienced of the living God, even beyond that face-to-face -face encounter with God on the top of Mount Sinai where God carved out the two stone tablets and where God burned the Decalogue onto those stone tablets. And Moses, for 40 days and 40 nights, stood in the presence of God. He wanted to know God even beyond that. The Scripture tells us in Numbers that while he was up there during that 40 days and 40 nights, he saw God, but the Scripture says he saw a veiled form. It seems that Moses desired a vision of unveiled majesty. How did Moses get to this place where he could pray such a selfless prayer? I don't think there's a bit of selfishness in this prayer, as I emphasized a moment ago. And how did he get to this place where he would receive such a marvelous response from God? Well, again, a right relationship to God does not happen overnight. It's a process that God builds into our lives. Once we are born again, we're an infant in Christ. And we have to go through the toddler stage and, and the, the, uh, the, the pre-adolescent stage, the adolescent stage. We have to go through all those stages just as we do physically, spiritually. That's how we grow. There are some today who would like to short-circuit that and kind of leap from point A to point B and, and go from infancy to adulthood by just having some kind of a supernatural experience. It doesn't happen. God doesn't give a real spiritual, supernatural experience that's so far beyond our ability to, to deal with it or to use it in a way that's pleasing to Him. Moses got it through a long, arduous walk of faith and obedience, which began with that wonderful encounter with God at the burning bush. And it continued through the miracles that were performed through him there in Egypt. I think Moses, was, his own mind was blown by those miracles. This is what God says he's going to do. Is that what you're really going to do, Lord? <laughs> you know? And whoosh, it happens. And I think he stood there in awe, you know. I don't think Moses was the least bit cocky about the whole thing. Well, Pharaoh, if you don't watch out, I'm going to make this whole river turn to blood. Then you'll see. I think Moses was awed by the very thought that God would do that through him. And then, of course, the, 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 the wondrous crossing of the Red Sea. Did, did Moses, when he walked up leading the children of Israel, stood on the bank of the Red Sea there, and he says, be still and know and see what God will do. Did, did he say, oh, now God, will you open the sea for us? No, he knew what God was going to do. But God did something wonderful. <sighs> like Moses stood there flabbergasted, you know, at what God did as he parted the Red Sea. And then the miracle of provision of manna and water in the wilderness. The victory over the Amalekites as he sat on the hill with his hands spread. And he had to have help at that point, you know, Aaron and her holding up his hands uh, for this, this great victory, which would be won. And then his awesome encounter with God on the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And then sort of the capstone, that selfless intercessory prayer, he prayed on behalf of his people. Oh, God, blot my name out for my people. Moses' great desire to see God's glory was motivated by his sense of inadequacy. He knew he couldn't lead this people 
this rebellious people to the promised land in his own strength. He knew the task was beyond him spiritually and emotionally. I mean, he was having a hard time, I think, hanging on to his emotions. Obviously, when he came down off the mountain, he saw the Israelites in, in rebellion, he lost it. He heaved the tablets down the mountain. The responsibility was too great for human flesh to bear. Therefore, he wanted God to burn into his mind and into his heart by, by some supernatural vision to burn into him the reality of his power in such a way that he would never doubt that God would enable him to complete the task that he'd been called to do. That he would never doubt that God would lead them to the promised land no matter what they faced in between. And little did he know at that moment that it was going to be 40 long years. We have to realize that when they were at Sinai, they intended, or at least the hope was, that after they had their encounter there and, and they moved north, it was going to be right on into the promised land. This thing could have been a two-year program. They decided to make a 40-year program out of it. And if Moses had known that, I'm sure he'd have prayed even more ardently here. <laughs> 40 years in this wilderness with this people? He could have said to God two things, show me thy glory, or oh, God, forget it, we can't do this, or I can't do this. And what, a, what an example is Moses to us here, that you and I dare not attempt to, to, to do God's work without the certainty that God is both leading us and empowering us. The scripture warns us that in our flesh we are not able to do any good thing. Period. Underline any. There's not a single good thing that you and I can do in the flesh that has eternal value. Not a single thing. There's nothing we can do that honors God, that brings glory to his name, makes, us, makes him love us more in our own flesh. But we're also told in the scripture that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So the key is Christ internally in us, strengthening us. Christ is in us if we are born again. But everything's not automatic from there as most of us well aware of as we struggle through life, that we have to intentionally seek Tim day by day to fill us anew that we might have the strength to do his will. Despite all of our modern methodology, and you can go to seminary and learn about all these methods of church growth and evangelism and everything else, and despite all of our technology, you know, put it on the computer, I'm going to send it off on the internet, I'm going to evangelize by email, whatever, we are no more able, with all of that, to fulfill God's command in our own strength than was Moses. It isn't going to happen. It isn't going to matter. We, too, must see God's glory. How do we do that? Through this book. That's how we see his glory. Oh, yes, Constantine supposedly saw a vision of, of, of the Lord in the sky and these words, by this sign conquer. I doubt that. You know, some very vigorous... Church historians later kind of embellish things, I think. God shows us his glory through his word. We don't study it. We don't know it. Then we aren't going to know much of his glory. We're not going to know him very well either. God's love and compassion are so wonderfully demonstrated by his response to Moses' request. He could have said to Moses, Moses, remember, you saw me at the burning bush. I worked through you in the miracles in Egypt. I parted the Red Sea for you. I met with you on the top of Mount Sinai. What more do you want? 
You've gotten more than anybody else has gotten. God doesn't say that. He simply grants his request. In the words of the commentators Kyle and Delich, there is a but here. There is a, a bit of a limitation here. It says that God answers his request only so far as the limit existing between infinite and holy God and finite and sinful man allowed. And that's the real key here. God told Moses, I'm going to reveal to you my goodness. By that he meant, of course, his character and his nature. Because God's goodness, which is one of his attributes, does reveal to him, to us, his character and his nature. And then also to proclaim his name, the name Yahweh, the great I am. I am that I am, Moses discovered at the burning bush. The great God with no beginning and no end, the all-sufficient one who is the eternal present existent one. And all else is transient and dependent upon him. But it's going to be a veiled expression of his glory. And then God makes a very interesting statement here, which is quoted in other contexts as a statement of God's sovereignty. But I think he makes it here so that Moses will know that I am granting your request here, Moses, out of my grace, not because you have any claim upon me to require me to do this, but out of my grace, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I am sovereign majesty. Furthermore, God told Moses that he cannot reveal his unveiled glory because sinful man cannot see the unveiled glory of God and live. I, I love the passage in, in uh, John, I think it is, where the, all these people are tramping up into the garden with their, with their, in the garden of Gethsemane with their torches and they're coming after Jesus in the night, you know, and Judas is going to give the kiss. And Jesus just lets a little tiny sliver of his glory go forth. And he says, I am he, and whap! Every one of them falls on their backside, on his backside. I wonder how they kept from tangling up and burning each other with their torches as they unscrambled there and got back on their feet. And I think sec next time they said, uh, we're looking for, for Jesus, maybe? You know, <laughs> they weren't quite so bold. And then, of course, there's the Apostle Paul riding on his donkey to the, to the city of Damascus, and just a tiny glimpse of the glory of God, which at that moment said it was brighter than, the, he said, was brighter than the new day sun. I don't know if you've ever stood and stared at the sun. I hope not. But if you can imagine a light brighter than that, and that was just a glimpse, a teeny glimpse of God's glory. And it blinded, blinded Paul until God healed his eyes. So can you imagine actually looking at unveiled majesty in the flesh? No way. We'd be fried. It can't happen. And so Moses tells, God tells Moses that. And then Moses, God tells Moses, this is what I will do for you. And we'll look at that next week.